Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. The word vampire brings to mind, for most, terrifying images of mythological, bloodthirsty, undead, once-human creatures that rise from their graves at night, driven by an insatiable need to feed on the life's blood of unsuspecting human victims. According to an article by Philippe Bostrom from Heretz.com, quote, Fear of demons and the undead has stalked humanity since prehistory. The oldest indication that living people feared unholy resurrection may be a site in Jordan where prehistoric villagers enigmatically dismembered the dead 9,000 years ago. Some archaeologists postulate that the post-mortem mutilation was done to prevent them from rising again. What the beliefs were in the millennia before writing can only be inferred. But finally, writing would develop, and over 4,000 years ago, as texts attest, belief in demonic beings that, at the least, consume blood were prevalent in Mesopotamia and northern Africa. By the time of ancient Babylon over 4,000 years ago, the spirit was clearly believed to survive the physical body. Rituals and amulets were created to prevent these supernatural beings from molesting the living, and at about the same time, in the deserts and wastelands of Sumer, demons named Lilitu and Dime were believed to prowl in the night in search of victims to drain of blood and life force. Despite the occurrence of vampiric creatures in these ancient civilizations, the folklore for the entity known today as the vampire originates almost exclusively from early 18th century southeastern Europe, when verbal traditions of many ethnic groups of the region were recorded and published. In most cases, vampires are revenant of evil beings, suicide victims, or witches, but they can also be created by a malevolent spirit possessing a corpse or by being bitten by a vampire. Belief in such legends became so pervasive that in some areas it caused mass hysteria and even public executions of people believed to be vampires. The myth of what a vampire is and how they appear have changed and morphed over the millennia. Most people are familiar with Bram Stoker's Dracula and Ugg. Stephanie Meyer's popular Twilight series. But what is a vampire, really? Do they exist? There are some people who not only claim that vampires are real, but they themselves identify as one of the infernal creatures in the flesh. In this episode, Morgan takes a deeper look at vampire lore, and later on, we'll hear from notable Australian vampirologist, president and founder of the Vampire Studies Association, and editor of the Journal of Vampire Studies, 
Anthony Hogg as we take a look at humanity's fascination with vampires. Here's Morgan. It's difficult to make a single definitive description about the folkloric vampire. Though in Europe, there are some common elements, bloated, ruddy, purple, fat from the recent drinking of blood from victims. Not exactly the suave and sparkly image that we have today, is it? They sure weren't sweeping the ladies off their feet or yearning for undying love. Blood was often seen seeping from their mouths and nose, their left eye open, and it was usually clad in linen, not tuxedos. Its dirty fingernails, teeth, and hair were elongated, and usually fangs weren't a feature. While some folks described them as the undead, many described them as living beings. In Slavic and Chinese traditions, if an animal of any kind jumped over a corpse, it had the potential of being one of the undead, a body with an untreated wound which had not been cared for with boiling water was also a potential hazard. And in Russia, if you rebelled against the Orthodox Church, odds are you would probably be a vampire when you died. Why? Because, well, you must have been a witch in life. The typical vampire we see depicted in films is not the only place we see elements of blood-drinking monsters. In cryptozoology, a strange animal known as the chupacabra or the goat sucker is a constant and persistent risk to chickens, sheep, and other livestock. Animals are regularly found with puncture marks in their neck and the blood drained from the body with no evidence of blood in the area. People have reported seeing a four-foot-tall creature with large eyes hanging around chicken coops, which they believe is the culprit, although descriptions vary wildly. And in recent years, a strange, hairless, unidentified canine has donned the name. It is now photographed regularly and has been seen on police dash cams as well as physical bodies recovered and stuffed. No matter what lore or description you subscribe to, an age-old question appears from this muddle of legend. What creates a monster? Is it their frightening appearance? Their ability to come back from the dead? Their deadly attacks? Or does it have more to do with the innate fear of losing our own mental functions to something over which we have no control. Many cases of similar creatures, the Layak of Bali, the Asanabonum of Ghana, the Akimu of Mesopotamia, the Asima from Suriname, and others, not only cause others to turn into otherworldly creatures, but in the case of the German Neintutor, it kills by spreading its own disease. Its name translate to the killer of nine, because it is believed it takes nine days to die once you see the creature. In a similar fashion, the First Nations Wendigo, or Witiko, is feared for the same reason. If it attacks you, you not only risk death, but risk becoming another Wendigo. Your family becomes your target, and the sense of home that you once trusted becomes a battlefield. The Asima is known to seep through walls as bright balls of blue energy, draining the victim's blood while they sleep. Seeds, nails, and garlic are the only hope of defending yourself against this energetic monster. Many of the features we see in the vampire lore blanket the fear of losing our faculties and giving in to our most frightening primal ways, eating one another and having no choice in the matter. It also highlights another fear, the fear of an attack we can't see coming. 
Whether it be a vampire that takes on the appearance of a ball of light, or a seductive lover, or a family member turned vicious, the attacks all come from places we don't expect, and people we trust, when we are at our most vulnerable, and where we offer trust. The idea of feeling uncertain regarding what happens to us after we die also plays a role here. The vampire or the victims are stuck in some kind of purgatory, a living hell they can't seem to escape without the relief of another person's actions, such as killing them in some specific way or ritual. In the bayou, the Rugaru falls to the same traditions, a werewolf curse that holds a person captive until someone cuts them and causes blood to spill. Only then, it is said, can they be cured. Although there are plenty of Rougarou tales and stories about how it came to be, the idea of a curse that someone cannot control is a theme through many. I see a similar stream of thinking in the world of hauntings, and as a researcher, I am often surprised at how many still adhere to the idea that spirits get stuck and need to be crossed over, a line of thinking that goes back to the days of the church, where parishioners were required to pay the church money to get their loved ones out of purgatory. Despite there being no parapsychological evidence that this is the case, the trope persists in television, media, and popular thinking. The fear of these vampire monsters has been so great over the years that people have become desperate to recognize these traits before they get hurt. Nowadays, we tend to reach out to psychology, seeking books on narcissism, psychopathy, or sociopathy to avoid potential human predators. We fear running into monsters that we simply don't see coming, being frightened our instinct might fail us and we might miss a critical warning sign. We translate this same behavior into our mythos as well. How do we stop the thing we can't see from sneaking up on us when we are unaware? One method of finding a vampire's grave involved leading a virgin boy through a graveyard or church grounds on a virgin stallion. The horse would supposedly balk at the grave in question. Generally, a black horse was required, although in Albania, it should be white. Holes appearing in the earth over a grave were taken as a sign of vampirism. Corpses, thought to be vampires, were generally described as having a healthier appearance than expected, plump and showing little or no signs of decomposition. Even poltergeist or psychokinetic activity has been blamed on the possibility of a vampire lurking about, Things, again, that we now know are often generated by the human themselves. So perhaps that's a clue. The fear of other humans has been a long-held issue amongst the human race. We fear other cultures, other races, other belief systems, strangers, neighbors, and especially dead bodies. The fear of dead bodies is come by honestly. We learned early on that bodies emit diseases and deadly gases upon decomposition. They bring rats and bugs and plagues. We feared corpses for a good reason. And couple that with a general fear of other humans hurting us in some way, it isn't hard to see how the psychology of the vampire begins to come together. During the 18th century, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings in Eastern Europe with frequent stakings and grave diggings to identify and kill the potential revenants. Even government officials engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires. Despite being called the Age of Enlightenment, during which most folkloric legends were quelled, the belief in vampires increased dramatically, resulting in a mass hysteria throughout most of Europe. 
This controversy spread like wildfire and began when there was an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia in 1721 and then in Habsburg monarchy in 1725 to 1734, which spread to other localities. Two infamous vampire cases, the first to be officially recorded, involved the corpses from Serbia. One man was reported to have died at the age of 62, but allegedly returned after his death asking his son for food. When the son refused, he was found dead the following day. He supposedly returned and attacked some neighbors who died from loss of blood. In a second incident, an ex-soldier turned farmer who allegedly was attacked by a vampire years before died while haying. After his death, people began to die in the surrounding area and it was widely believed that he had returned to prey on his neighbors. The two incidents were well documented. Government officials examined the bodies, wrote case reports, and published books throughout Europe. The hysteria, commonly referred to as the 18th century vampire controversy, raged for a generation. The problem was exacerbated by rural epidemics of so-called vampire attacks, undoubtedly caused by the higher amount of superstition that was present in village communities, with locals digging up bodies and in some cases, staking them. Dom Augustine Calmet, a French theologian and scholar, published a comprehensive treaty in 1751 entitled Treatise on the Apparitions of Spirits and on Vampires or Revenants, which investigated the existence of vampires, demons, and specters. Calmet conducted extensive research and amassed judicial reports of vampiric incidents and extensively researched theological and mythological accounts as well, using the scientific method in his analysis to come up with methods for determining the validity for cases of this nature. The controversy in Austria only ceased when Empress Maria Theresa of Austria sent her personal physician to investigate claims of vampiric entities. He concluded that vampires did not exist and the empress passed laws prohibiting opening the graves and the desecration of bodies, sounding the end of the vampire epidemics. Other European countries followed suit. Despite this condemnation, the vampire lived on in artistic works and local folklore. Although these creatures are still present in theatrical works, movies, and books today, the vampire begs bigger questions than simply an option for a Halloween costume. They are an opportunity to glimpse the deepest fears of humanity. For wherever vampire fears lurk, exists a people who tread on unstable ground. The fear of the unknown and the willingness to believe that what we do not understand will ultimately kill us or destroy us in some way gives way to beliefs that can do far more damage than a fanged monster sneaking into our rooms at night. It is the same fuel that causes accusations, isolation, and a lack of critical thinking and invested understanding, and the closing of minds. Perhaps the greatest damage a vampire can do is to not show up at all, but rather the fear of the vampire itself is enough to begin to create a disease in the mind. If we fear thy neighbor, the plague of the vampire begins to seal doors, close windows, and shut down hearts. Strangers become threats and potential monsters with no evidentiary basis other than the rumor mill. Conversation stops and a new plague begins without a vampire 
ever setting foot on the ground. So, what creates a monster? Perhaps it is a lack of garlic, superstition, or not burying a body in the right direction. Or perhaps it is fear. Perhaps it's our own innate fear of the unknown, looking back at us in the mirror, that makes vampires a unique type of horror. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It is our pleasure and just with at absolute utmost fascination, Anthony, to have you on Supernatural Circumstances today because uh, you, Mike and I, about a year ago, we were discussing this idea and this concept of of vampires and not of not in terms of, uh, I, I think, what most people are familiar with today in terms of films and, and things like that, but just... This this other level of of vampiric folklore and all of these amazing things that that's attached to it and um, so thank you first of all for for coming on <laughs> joining us today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, happy to be here. So, what was your initial interest in uh, in in vampires and and the lore? What what got you started in this? Well, before my interest in vampires, I was actually already interested in the the supernatural. So around the age of eight. Uh, I got interested in uh, monsters and ghosts and all that kind of thing. Um, and that evolved into a, uh, interest in mythology. And then at around uh, when I was uh, starting grade six, uh, back in 93, I caught a viewing of Fright Night Part 2, the 1989 or 88 version on TV. And there's something about it that really hooked me. And I think it was a confluence of um, of the kind of the monster hunting role that you see in mythology, you know, the heroes versus the monsters, the, the lore that's associated that with that. So like the little tropes and... Um, little uh rules that folklore type uh, that follows that you also see in mythology as well um and it, it, it's very hard to re- put my finger on even as many times as i've kind of wondered about it i don't know what specifically gravitated to me towards that but after i watched that that movie i read as much as I could on the subject. I really got stuck into it. You know, I raided my school library. I raided my public libraries, whatever I could read on the subject. And the more I read, the more uh, fascinated I became with with the subject, you know. So it, it kind of 
my early exposure was to works like, uh, I guess it was good timing too, because around about this time, there had been a kind of resurgence of interest in vampires because of uh, the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula coming out in 92. Right. So there was, a, there was a lot of material to kind of draw on. I remember reading books by um, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, um, Jay Gordon Melton came out with his uh, encyclopedia, you know, in 94, so not long after. So was, there was a good body of material to draw on at the time. So it could have just been a bit of a stroke of luck. Oh, wow. Yeah, like I, I think throughout the, the time that Mike and I have been doing this podcast, we've, we've really realized mm. that there, there really are, are no accidents. And it, it's it's neat. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's true. And it's, it's so interesting to hear your story because I, I can relate to that in so many ways where... I mean, just my interest early, early, early on, it just it started in a very similar way to yours. It's like I had a, I had a, mm. an actual experience and, and whatnot, but I found myself just immersed in, um, in the, the subject matter of, of the paranormal. And it's, it's neat to, to know that, you know, other people have had the same experience. So being in Australia, how has the concept mm. of vampires manifested there? Has, have you noticed that there's, it's a different lore or is it, you know, very similar to other parts of the world? That's a, that's a good question because in Australia, just like Canada, actually, we've got two levels of cultural experience. So we've got our Indigenous population right, um, and you've got the Western um, uh, colonial kind of influence. So on the, the um, Aboriginal front, the, the closest thing off the top of my head that we have to like a vampire um, uh, tradition is the Yaramahu, which is a kind of uh, like a bogey that lives up in a tree and that kind of uh, grabs people walking below that tree and kind of picks them up and sucks their blood. I'm, I'm very paraphrasing big time here because it's been a long time since I read about it. <clears throat> I just ran out of breath there. Long time since I've read about it. Um, and that's the, that's the main one. I don't think there is much in terms of, I mean, when when we kind of broach that idea, we've got to really consider what a vampire is. That that's a, a eternal semantic question right. when it comes to vampire studies. Because like when we talk about the vampire being a global phenomenon, what we're what we're saying is there's got to be some kind of template to even call it a vampire in the first place. So if we look at where we get the word from, and I, I do apologise for dovetailing into this, but I just got to give it. No, that this kind is of this is great. Please well. go go ahead. But where we get the word vampire from is from, the, from Serbia, a Serbian vampire, and it was basically a reference to an undead blood-sucking corpse. So when we look at that in a global perspective, that, that's not a reoccurring phenomena. That's not something that's everywhere. What you might get is elements of that template. So it might be a being that uh, drains energy or, you know, it might be instead of a person, it might be a demon or it might be a spirit or something like that. So we're using a very loose and rough definition of what a vampire is. So, And, of course, the, the concept of vampirism is very flexible in terms of how you apply it as a, a as a terminology so when we talk about it being like say in the native traditions you know i'm talking about some kind of d demonic or kind of monstrous entity um, but if i was to apply the slavic model then it, it would be more, much more rarer um, so 
that mo- particular model influences the Western concept of, of vampires, you know. So we're, we're, what you said earlier about film and, and, you know, books and that kind of thing. So in Australia with that on that front, it's very kind of, um, let's say, very kind of rare, rare. But I actually did visit a cemetery back in 2016 uh, Tubong Cemetery in Queensland, which has a, a, a story of, of a vampire there as well. And the, the way that the vampire is described there, it's, you know, it, it was found, it was, you know, unearthed and it had uh, ruby red lips and fangs and all this kind of stuff. And the description, it was very much in terms of uh, like a 19th century literature version of what a vampire is. Because if we go back beyond that, then then all a vampire really was, at least in the Slavic tradition, was a corpse that had remained fresh in the grave. And occasionally they might find blood pouring out of its mouth or in its coffin or something like that. The fangs thing is an addition that comes later on. Really? And mainly through literature. Absolutely. You know, so when we talk about, uh, you know, the, the most iconic feature of a vampire being its fangs, that that is a later addition to it because like any kind of folklore, the concept has evolved with each retelling and our popular perception of it. You know, we are using a term right now, vampire, that came into English in 1732 in reference to a vampire pandemic in Serbia, but it didn't start there. That was kind of like, the crystallization of the idea of what a vampire is, it's kind of lingered in our popular consciousness. But before then, it was a kind of idea that evolved over time. Like I, there's a lot of overlap in Slavic tradition with the with the vampire and the upia, which is like a general description for um, ghosts or, or the undead returning. And so even the, even the blood-sucking motif is something that happens much later as well in the last few hundred years, I would say. You know, so, so much of what we think we know about them is fairly recent in terms of the, the modern viewpoint of stuff. And in the Australian context, that's what's influenced our point of view. You know, it's very, very heavily influenced by, you know, Western culture, British and American in particular. So our traditions here are, are much more new as well to reflect that. You know, you won't get much beyond it. And everything else is an embrace of, of uh, popular culture, apart from some like kind of um, uh, Aboriginal influences that are kind of a, a blend of, of the two as well. So it's, I think you'll find manifestations of that all over the place, even I, I would say in your country too, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really so interesting. It's, it's a kind of, it, yeah, it, it is a kind of, that that is actually one of the things that got me interested in the first place. I started getting into um, the kind of idea of debunking what we kind of think we know about vampires. The more you read about it, the more you learn, the more you start to see Actually, uh, funnily enough, now that we're mentioning Canada, a big a big part of it, well, a big part of my influence in that regard was actually a Canadian scholar named Elizabeth Miller, uh, who who was a, a who's who was um, a very much a game changer in terms of modern Dracula scholarship. But her approach was to debunk a lot of theories about the book about Dracula itself, 
So I kind of applied that to vampire studies itself, you know, our concept of what a vampire is. But the more I've learned again, the more I realized that the idea is more flexible than we kind of give it credit for. So that's where there's a war within myself of a conservative approach versus a more kind of uh, looser liberal approach to the idea. So it's just something that kind of refines in me a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting, <clears throat> and it's it's interesting of what you're saying about about the the folklore and uh, the the traditions and whatnot as well. Like here in Canada um, and the the West in general, like you know we've we we see these oh, concepts kind of traced back yeah. in First Nations yeah. cultures, it, like the Abenaki it, and Cree. It is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. it, it's more. You think about it this way, right? In our own culture, we've got urban legends, you know, and that is basically folklore, but for the cities, you know, it's folklore for the suburbs, for the towns, but the concept is the same. It's when people tell stories to each other, each time they do that, the story changes, you know, because you might add your own tweak, someone might embellish it somewhere, that story gets passed along and so on and so forth to the point where, it becomes a very amorphous kind of hazy thing that evolves as well. You know, like it evolves into a different idea. Our modern concept of vampire, what the vampire is, is a product of that same evolution. Because each time it has been told, it has grown, you know, wings and taken flight, you know, and that's why authors have that flexibility to use their imagination with it. I've often seen like on social media, groups you know like people talking about oh what would a vampire do and, and you know in this particular situation if they're writing a book about it i'd say whatever you want because it's up to your imagination and what you what you do with it so when people say vampires don't sparkle well according to who according to the mythos of stephanie meyer they do but that's if you're subscribing to her particular uh, uh kind of worldview of them I mean, it, they're not—they're not real anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so you can—you can give it a cape, you can give it—you know—you can give it a top hat, you can do whatever you want with the thing, because it's already uh, a, a product of imagination. So you know, it depends very much on the context in which you use it. So yeah, just, yeah that makes—that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So uh, there, uh, like we've talked about, there, there's so many different types of, of vampires culturally i mean mm. you've listed a few of them and uh, earlier in the podcast we'll be talking about a, a, a number of them as well what are the what are the vampire types or species that that stand out to you as as the ones that are the most memorable mm. there was one um i recall reading about one i think from south america i can't remember its name off the top of my head i remember reading about this long ago it was, uh, I think, a kind of vampire that sucked uh, blood through people's ears with its nose. Or, 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 or <laughs> That's a new like one. That. You get a lot of kind of um, interesting. Then, then of course, you've got the Southeast Asian variants where they tend to be like heads that detach themselves from bodies and, you know, kind of fly around at nighttime, that, that kind of thing. Um, having their entrails and whatever dragging behind them, you know, hanging from their neck. It's, there's so many different, um, like I guess you would call species, and this is very much um, uh, vampirologist Teresa Bain's uh, kind of uh, kind of area, and it, it again shows you that to, in order to rationalise the, the vampire as a universal model, you've got to be very 
flexible with what you consider a vampire to right. be, you know, like, you know, it's, is it like, that's where, it, is it alive? Is it dead? Is it, you know, what does it actually drink? What does it do? All that kind of thing. So, but the, the underlining, the, the, I guess the baseline of that is it's kind of a supernatural uh, figure um, because, you know, the ordinary person can't detach their heads from their bodies and go out in search of people to feed on, you know, so there's got to be some kind of mystical element uh, to qualify, I would say. But at the same time, you've got people who identify as vampires themselves, you know, living human beings like the rest of us. And then that's where you start to get into a whole new area of uh, semantics too. Yeah. So you've been editing for a while the the Journal of of Vampire Studies. How how did you get into that? Because that is Mm. so interesting. Well, for for me, it was a byproduct of just reading about it. Eventually, I, I remember when I was... Uh, first interested in it, I used to compile all these little pieces of lore that I, I found in various books, especially uh, my biggest influence being um, Paul Barber's Vampires, Burial and Death, um, a, a book that came out in 1988. It was one of the first books I kind of really read or tackled on the subject. But all these lo- lots of different pieces of lore. Uh, and then it got to a book, I mean, between my interest in vampire studies itself, I actually wanted to write vampire novels. Uh, and so I, I compiled um, a bunch of story ideas and such. But while I was doing that, I was researching a bunch of things at the same time. Um, and then that led me down a path of going into source material. So a lot of vampire studies today is rooted or, or it was in the, the writings that came out about them in the 18th century, um, uh, particularly from uh, Germany. Um, and then, of course, you got uh, more popular uh, works by uh, Augustin Calmay, which came out in the mid-18th century as well about the subject. And I started to delve into that more and by chasing sources, you know, going back to the original, that that kind of blossomed into more of an interest into vampire studies itself, to study it, to go right to the heart of what a vampire was. And then that, that just, and I realised that there wasn't enough that I had been exposed to or read about it until I started to find like-minded people like um, Niels K. Peterson, who writes the um, Magia Post-Humor blog. So it comes from chasing up original kind of sources because, like I said with uh, uh, Elizabeth Miller before, uh, uh, kind of like a lot of what we know about the subject is kind of layer upon layer, secondhand, thirdhand source recounting. So to really strip that back and to see what's been represented is accurate, you go back to the source, you know, the classic kind of journalism model. And that that made me see that there is something there in terms of a field that people can apply, you know, more, um, more integrity, more kind of... Um, scholarly principles to and I'm, I'm not the first I'm by far not the first person to kind of uh, to articulate that or to to kind of uh, recognize it but I put a lot of emphasis on it now because I don't feel like it has enough representation 
you know, and, and I want that representation to occur more in, in a wider scale. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's, it's interesting, mm. too, how, you know, every, it, like you were saying, there's this finding the source material and trying to figure out, you know, where some of these things come from. And yes. it seems to be such, yes. such yeah. a common, um, like such a common theme through so many cultures. Why, why have you found that every culture seems to have some form of this, even cultures that have never spoken to each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's the, the, the influence of, um, not the influence, the, uh, the desire to kind of unify things, I think is what drives that, that perception, you know, like that, like a universal law that we're all kind of the same and all this kind of thing. But if you look at the undercurrent of it, and particularly with what I've mentioned with Paul Barber's work before, the, the, the approach that he took to the subject was rather than just, just dismiss what they say is superstition, there must be a reason why they believed what they believed. So in the case of vampires themselves, earlier I mentioned the qualifier for identifying a vampire, and I'm talking specifically in a Serbian context of the era, so 18th century, was that the vampire was a body that, you know, had remained fresh in the grave after, you know, prolonged duration, occasionally found blood in its mouth. Now, we now know in the 21st century what can cause that kind of phenomenon, which is, you know, the state of the soil, the, the weather conditions, you know, certain diseases, certain poisons, all that kind of stuff. There is a logical reason why a body can be preserved longer than, it's, than it should be by normal standard. Now, at the time, they didn't have that concept, you know. So their science of, of what happens to a body after it dies is is relatively more recent. Um, So the thing that underlies all of these universalities is that the human experience itself. So another example is the vampire attack. So you get visited at nighttime, someone you recognize or or a family member, a friend, village or whatever comes into your room. They lay down upon you, putting a weight on your chest, this kind of thing. This is why it pays to read those early descriptions. You know, if we rely solely on, you know, what we see on TV or the movies where, you know, they sneak in, bite your neck, that kind of thing, then you're missing the kind of the the, the detail of the original. So what they're describing is very easily recognisable as sleep paralysis, right. you know. So, so that is a universal human experience. What we're really talking about is the human experience filtered through, you know, a thousand, five thousand different cultural lenses. But if you look at the common elements between them, you can see, okay, that explains why they believe that because it's not something that only exists in a particular area. It might be, even in the case of actually what I've mentioned with sleep paralysis, there has been an, uh, analogies drawn between that and alien abduction um, experiences um, of ghost experiences, demonic experiences, all that kind of thing. And it, it not just it doesn't just filter culturally; it filters individually. Sure. I mean, the individual, the person, you, me, everybody we know is a culture onto themselves because they've got their own experience, their own life experience, their own. Um, spiritual or non-spiritual views so everything we we recount in terms of experience phenomena is filtered through that lens 
So, you know, the, the universal element behind all is the human experience itself. You know, the, it, it, it only changes depending on where you are, the time frame you're in. Like I said before, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. But had we been living in the 18th century, we would have had no knowledge and we would have had to have relied on what other authorities said on the, on the particular subject. You know, the, the cases I'm referring to when I talk about bodies being, you know, found to be fresh is because people literally dug them up, you know, as, as a process of trial and error to find out what the cause of a particular um, outbreak of disease in a village would be. You yeah. know, that was that sounds insane now, but back then it made perfect sense to them because that was a tradition that they had used to kind of explain the unexplainable, you know, and, and that applies across any kind of um, paranormal or any kind of supernatural thing where our knowledge of a particular subject, how we explain it, is limited by how much we know. And that is another filter right there. Well, that's it's such a great point that you're bringing up. And, and actually, Mike and I, we've talked about, you and I have talked about this so many times before, where it, it's the, and, and actually with John Yost, a, a guest that we had uh, recently, where it just seems like um, people are, are, are interpreting, you know, their experiences using mm. simply the knowledge that they have. And Mike, you, you probably want to talk about that because, like, we had that conversation about the Spider-Man eyes. Yeah, I don't know how deeply I want to get into that, but uh, uh, essentially when I was a kid, I had an experience where I woke up uh, in bed and I saw this thing looking at me standing, it was, its head just stood just a little bit above the bed and um, it had eyes that were shaped like almonds um, and I described it as Spider-Man eyes. And I later... Um, upon seeing a picture of a gray alien said, no, no, that's what I saw. It was that kind of thing. So I guess I get it. What you're saying is what, how we look at things is just um, always filtered through what we have knowledge of, uh, even creatively. It's, it's interesting to me that's like the theme, like the, the same sort of theme in terms of, you know, our, our consciousness and how people interpret events and things like that. It does all... <laughs> tend to connect and you're and you're right like I, you know i've seen this with paranormal phenomenon too especially within different cultures you know some of the classes that i've taught that have you know <clears throat> multiple different cultures sitting in the class and you know you'll you'll start <clears throat> talking about a, a really well documented phenomenon and you know everybody goes oh well i know what that is and then they'll repeat the story in their culture and then someone else will put their hand up and say oh no no it's not that it's this and then it's another cultural tale and, yes. and isn't that the funny yeah. thing? Because everyone thinks they're right, don't they? Yeah, and it's like and everybody's so having like, the same experience. Yes, yes, and it's that's that's the filter at work. You know, it's like, and you can see why people take this stuff very personally because it's a profound experience, isn't it? You know, it's something that like how how dare you kind of uh say that this is you know just my imagination or something like that because it's it's something that really impacts people we could be talking about nbes we could be talking about you know other out-of-body experience and that you can explain that stuff scientifically but what you can't do is kind of rob people of something deeply personal to them because you know whatever you say it is going to be something that you know, unless you experience it yourself, it's going to be a different kind of, and that's something I'm learning too, because 
like the filter we're talking about, you can apply empiricism to it, or you can say, just kind of hear them out and kind of listen to what they're talking about. But it, it's kind of, it's a very kind of a murky area because on one hand, you don't want to be too accommodating to just blindly, you know, relaying just a whole bunch of things. And I commonly experience this in the, a lot of the Facebook groups I monitor, uh, I, I admin, where people start talking about how they're like, uh, you know, descended from some kind of, you know, vampire ancestor yeah. and they, they're, they're coming from a royal bloodline and all this kind of stuff. All you need to do is, is ask to, to say two words that, which is prove it. And then that's where it all starts to unravel. But what you see that there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, it, it, there, it, it is something embedded in a lot of people, you know, for different reasons and, and, and such. So it's kind of, it's, it's a, it can be a bit, bit of a fraught topic to navigate, you know. When I got into the subject myself, it was it, vampirism was bang, it's a superstition, you know, it's nonsense and all this kind of stuff. But when people start to bring up the universal experience, when they talk about identifying as vampires themselves, and th things just get a lot more murkier when you start getting personal experience kind of thrown into mm -hmm. it but at the same time you've got to have an objective rational mind about it otherwise you start to sink into that uh, go down the rabbit hole kind of uh, a, a situation as well so you know yeah, it, it is very interesting to get multiple viewpoints on it and that is actually part of the drive of my interest in vampire studies too it is not a one-track thing it is it is a, a, a thing that exists with many minds pulled into it yeah, I it, it's it is it's, it is a rabbit hole. Like it, it is so deep. And do you think that there is something to to that idea that um, things like d disease? I know there was a um, I, I watched a documentary years rabies. ago. Rabies. Yeah, rabies. Exactly. Like rabies, things like that. Is is that a factor with this, or is that just rumor? oh the, the rabies thing? The rabies thing. I, with, with the rabies thing, I'll say this: there's a, what we call um, the medicalization of a myth. So it's basically, this, this is an interesting phenomenon too, because it's, you, can, you can tell when these theories are formed, what they've been influenced by. So the rabies one, for example, uh, there was, there's a particular author who's written about this. I think his name is uh, Yuan uh, Alonso Gomez, mm -hmm. who, who said he got his idea for it from watching a, a, a movie about vampires. So that rabid kind of attack thing, and that leads you down the rabbit hole of, well, what, what, what kind of naturalistic phenomena would cause somebody to do that? And they generate all these kind of theories about it. But when you start to look at the theory itself and its influences, it can't be the explanation because that kind of model of vampire in your head based on watching a movie did not exist. People could not have been influenced by something they had no conscious knowledge of. Another one is bringing Canada into it again because you guys have had, had a bigger impact than you realise. There's, a, 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 I think, a biochemist or something like that named um, David Dolphin who popularised the porphyria um, uh, interpretation of vampire phenomena. You know, people who suffer tremendously from being out in the sun, you know, their skin burns up, uh, they, their gums recede, so it looks like they have fangs and they may have relied on on blood to kind of 
to build up their, you know, their lack of vitamin deficiency or whatever. But he also got interpreted, he also got inspired by movies as well. You know, if you're using movies as a template to explain the vampire phenomena, then you're already on the wrong path because they did not exist. So that is another filter once again, because it, it is an interpretation of what the original accounts were and it, it just it doesn't make sense when you read them because the, the typical um, template back then would be someone who had been dead for multiple yeah you know, several weeks returning and people would be seeing them and you know seeing them at night time or whatever and then dying not long after. Mm. Now rabies doesn't make you come back from the grave, right. <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, it's not a symptom I'm familiar with. So you've got to explain that kind of process without kind of shunting it aside. Oh, no, they, they just made a mistake. You know, you, you've kind of got to really hone in on the detail of what they're talking about to explain it another way. There was even an 18th century um, scholar named George Teller who, who investigated one of these outbreaks in a Serbian village, and he determined that, uh, that people were hallucinating based on... Um, their diets because they were fasting for say Easter periods or Christmas or whatever. That's a religious uh, uh, example right there. And that was kind of screwing with their heads. And he's found that just by changing their diet, they stopped reporting this stuff. So every case you examine, there is no one size fits all explanation. Every account is going to have its different explanation because you're already dealing with, um, as something that is perpetuated by a tradition, you know, like the, the rough storyline, but the way you reach that story is going to have a different series of steps as well. Because one example is outright hoaxing, you know, sure. like I can think of, you know, that true Wong symmetry example I gave you before, I'm telling tales out of school here, but I actually talked to someone who knew the tour guide who, um, who, who is kind of the guy who this story originates from. And in a private conversation, he told her, oh, yeah, it's just bullshit. You know, so there is flat out hoaxing. You know, it, we find that in, uh, you know, in um, ghost tour kind of stuff, you know, I'm not going to say it for everybody, but I know that people will come up with stories just because, guess what, that's their yeah. job. Their job is to entertain and there, there's so many different reasons. It's not just, um, you know, a, a mistake of a phenomena. Sometimes it is just outright deception too. Or it could be just, you know, people just trying to explain something that they just don't understand in the same way that people couldn't understand something 200 years ago. We're in a similar boat today. You know, that is the great unifier of human experience across the board, everywhere. In fact, I can even give another example of outright hoaxing uh, in the 18th century or 19th century context. Um, one of the traditions associated with vampires was that they would, that, that a husband would return from the dead to sleep with his widow. Now, this actually got taken advantage of in at least one case where a local youth was visiting a young widow and he would dress up in a shroud and, you know, do the spooky noises kind of thing. And it kept people away, scared them off. But eventually they, they busted him doing it. I forgot what happened to him after. 
but even back then they were taking advantage of people's fear on it to, com- to commit hoaxing activity you know so once again the human experience manifests itself it doesn't just exist in this age it has always been there so you know th- there's great commonalities across the board in that way and the attempt to medicalize the, the, the myth is to give a nice one-size-fits-all explanation when what you're really dealing with is a variety of different phenomena which, to give it its due respect, requires a different set of uh, you know, reasons and explanation. You cannot do a one-size-fits-all. It does not work. Yeah, I, I, totally, I totally get that. Uh, and, Mike, I think you like we've, mm-hmm. we've seen this as well with other things. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it it doesn't matter which uh, branch of par- things paranormal that you're looking at. We always tend to run into this exact same situation where it's uh, it's explained like that, like you just did. Yeah, and so on that on that subject, because this is to me where this this can get kind of interesting, is that that. You know, you have these people that are, you know, out hoaxing or, you know, the rumor that, you know, there, there's a vampire about or, or something like that back in, you know, whether it be the Middle Ages or whatever. At, at any point, was there almost like a witch trial type mentality with this? Like, was was there enough panic that was causing a yes, problem? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because uh, there's an author named Bruce McClelland who's written about this. He's got a book, which I advise your audiences to check out, called... Um, uh, slayers and their vampires and basically the vampire is a scapegoat right? so I'm going to generalize here so the vampire the idea is you've got unexplained deaths happening in a village something is causing it um, remember we don't know about microbes or any kind of things like that at this time so what is causing this kind of phenomenon well hang on it must be the person who's now currently sighted around the village the most recently dead person um, so let's dig them up and check check out what's going on with them, you know. And we've got to remember as well the vampire phenomenon is associated with other things too, like, um, you know, cattle disease. There's even a, um, a scholar named, uh, I think his name is Christian Wright, I hope I've got his name right, who noted that the, the initial outbreak from where we get the term vampire from could have been caused by anthrax, an a- anthrax really? outbreak that happened at that time, yeah. Very interesting stuff, a very interesting theory, which I hope sees more circulation in English because he, he wrote about it in German. Um, but it, the details are timed pretty well. But going on what I said before about the medicalization of a myth, that would need further scrutiny to just to make sure the details kind of add up. Um, but once again, it's like the... the the root of it is trying to assign blame to a particular kind of person or figure. And I mean, in, in the case of vampires, at least the people were already dead. You know, right. in the case of witches, that, that's much more, a much more set of horrific circumstances there. But that drive to kind of assign blame for a particular tragedy or, or something like that, um, it's again that's the human nature of things we need an explanation and it might not be one that sounds feasible in hindsight but at the time it makes perfect sense going back even further to uh, horrific things like the persecution of jews you know during the black plague 
where, you know, apparently the plague was caused by the empoisoning wells and all this kind of stuff in certain regions, which, again, we now know, of course, is caused by, you know, uh, like a particular kind of, you know, virus or microbe or whatever it is, which they just had no concept of back then. So you've already got people who are fueled to kind of view certain types of people as outsiders. So I guess what happens when you get a disease or an outbreak, they must be the cause of it. It's them because, you know, for whatever reason that um, it's, it's kind of like a social exorcism, you know, casting out the undesirables or all the, the bad elements or the kind of purging in a society by projecting it onto something else and giving it and giving away an outlet for your frustration, for your, you know, lack of understanding on a subject and kind of punishing it. That kind of is the undercurrent behind these things. There must be some cause or blame rather than accept the possibility that we, we just don't know. I can't be sure, but you know, this is a this is a, a kind of a, a trick of the brain people have. You know, it's very hard for people to reconcile being uncertain. Yeah. That, that you know, we we are driven towards some kind of explanation rather than being content with I don't know and I, I'm not sure. Isn't that you the know? truth? So we might have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that making peace with the unknown. It's it's such a it's such a, a struggle, I think, for for so many people on so many levels, like not just with the paranormal, but just with everyday yeah. life. Um, you know, just as soon as yeah. they don't know that that unsettled, you know, I don't it, know. It's very unsettling. Yeah. I don't know. Like we've we've been dealing with that now with COVID. Yep. You know, everything we've been dealing with now is trial and error. You know, lockdowns, face masks, vaccines, everything. Um, we're trying to find the, the best way to deal with this. And now we've been left with a tremendous um, economic impact as well across the globe, you know, even in my country too, where, you know, we're, we're in this kind of twilight zone of having high, high employment, but also everything's going up, interest rates going up, petrol, all that kind of thing. Um, so people are looking for, the unknown, you know, like what's causes? I know what it was. It was, you know, a, a virus created in the lab in China, and this is all part of the great reset. And this is all planned. There's people doing this to us on purpose, rather than accept the idea that, you know, what this is something that m most of the world was just unprepared for, and they're kind of trying to deal with it in the best way they can. You can either accept that, or you can go. There are dark forces at work here. You know, we are being played, blah -de blah. And that kind of drive is, again, the human experience at work. How you interpret something is going to depend on what your kind of, what you would gravitate towards, you know, like what I've just described is basically two sets of kinds of people with this and which way you kind of go is kind of, um, uh, it, it's, it, you see what I mean? It's basically that kind of, where, where you steer to, there is something that drives that. And that's the psychological element behind all of this stuff. And that's the same drive that caused people to dig up corpses and hammer stakes with them and chop their heads off in the name of stopping something they could not understand, but having a concrete explanation, which is, oh, it's a vampire, so we must destroy it and then everything will get better. Right. That, that's the undercurrent behind it all. So with, and, and so starting to jump ahead a few thousand years, um, with, with 
with these, you know, there's been people that have come forward over the years. And again, I think this comes back to what we were talking about before, about the human experience and, and whatnot, where people are reporting uh, you know, even to this day, running into something that, you know, they can't explain, like, a, you know, a stranger on the sidewalk and feeling hypnotized or coerced or mm. um, these sort of modern day encounters with what people, you know, believe are it, like a modern day vampire or maybe not modern day, maybe something from from a long time ago. And it's it's interesting to me that like even today we still get people that report that you know what i was you know walking down the street there was this there's this weird guy i like i you know there was a, a time lapse you know i woke up you know feeling really weird or you know whatever it is and it's, it's interesting to me that um that like these reports still come through and, and i don't know do you think that this there's some cultural expectation here again is it something where people are just you know, interpreting that because vampire is the closest thing that they could, they could get to. Yeah, yeah. See that that's exactly it because that's the future again. What's our closest explanation to what this must be? Because you're limited by your knowledge and by, I mean, even even you can have the most advanced knowledge in the world, but there's going to be something that you do not know. So we are limited by the confines of whatever we can kind of ascribe something to like with these people who are experiencing this stuff they're not they're not like paranormal investigators by nature they're not kind of scientists they're not people who would have a grasp of you know potentially psychological phenomena or anything like that and this is why i emphasize that each thing should be investigated individually there's a there's a book called um haunted highgate by Della Farrant. Um, where she has basically tried to um, coalesce all these diverse reports to kind of frame one kind of concept of what that what that phenomena was. So you're putting everything under one umbrella to kind of rationalise an outcome you already believe in, which is classic confirmation bias in action. You know, so when we collate stories and put them under a single banner, just the sheer collation itself makes it look like the phenomena is legitimate. But what you're not doing is taking the time to individually say, hang on, did this actually happen? Is there another explanation for this kind of thing? Because that requires a lot of work, you know, a lot of time and effort goes into doing that. So it's much easier to just take everything in one hand and go, oh, well, there you go. That's proof right there. But that's, th that's where we kind of become unstuck. You know, this is, again, the human mind kind of trying to make sense out of disparate patterns and, and kind of presenting a kind of half-baked outcome just so we have an explanation, just so we understand we can give a name to it because once we give it a name, we have power over what that thing, that, that thing is, you know, it's trying to make sense of a chaotic world because we're very much geared towards, you know, order and, you know, systems and rigidity and anything that goes outside of that. And you can already tell perhaps that I'm, 
that you can apply this to so many different things. You know, we, we've currently got the, the, the abortion issue going on in America about what is a child. You've got the transgender issue of what is a woman, you know, all this kind of thing. Everything we took for granted has been challenged and, you know, it's becoming a, a much bigger story, a much bigger picture. And, and you can apply that this is what makes I think vampire stuff interesting. Even talking about it out loud, I realise how broad the application can actually be in terms of you start breaking it down into general concepts and and ways of thinking, and then you can see how it applies to virtually everything. In fact, a big part of my critical thinking skills came into it from in you know exploring the dimensions of vampire cases because I'm applying critical principles to something that I study. And that's why the study bit is so important, you know, not just uh, taking it for, you know, for what it is, but delving into it, you know, and, and learning more and more about what constituted that phenomena in the first place. You know, it, it, this is everywhere around us. Everything you can think of, can, these same principles can be applied, you know. So that's the, yeah, that's the undercurrent behind Absolutely. it all. No. Well, I'm headed to London tomorrow, so I'll, I plan on visiting Highgate, and I'll let you know if I if I have any experiences there. Yeah, we're going to be waiting, Mike. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fascinating and unbelievably enlightening. I, like, I have learned so much in the last hour, I think, almost more than any other podcast <laughs> that we've done. Because the, yeah. the vampire issue is something that I've... I, like I've I've explored, but I've I've not known near as much about it as as you've just <laughs> you've just unpacked. Mike, what do you have to say about that? Oh my gosh, yeah, my mind is blown. I have well, yeah. I have all these books to read now, like uh, Slayers and Vampires. And... Yeah, I definitely recommend checking uh, checking those books out. I'll just uh, I'll chuck in another one while I'm at it. While I'm on this hot streak, I'll say um uh, Jan L. Pachowski's uh, vampire law which is a, a compilation of his writings on the subject that's that's the the slavic vampire in particular so what you've got here what we've been talking about is where you get something very specific but you start to uh, uh, kind of broaden the horizon of what that is out outwards you know so like there's all these concepts I've been talking to today, you can uh, uh, talking about today sorry you can apply them across the board because what's the ultimate thing behind it? It's the human experience. So you could say, and that that's where the study principle comes into it. Because the the thing I like about studies is the critical thinking element and that it has universal application. You know, the great unifier is scientific concepts and scholarship. Uh, you know, the concept of give a source where you've learned information from, scrutinize the truth of something, this can be applied across literally anything, you know. So I do understand how people kind of approach things and the more you kind of talk about it out loud. Um, in fact, I've got a friend of mine who's a philosopher, you know, and, and we, we, I've caught up with him a few times. We just bantered about the world and all that kind of thing. And I think the ability to speak out loud just like as you do with your podcast interviewing people all that kind of thing is you start to formulate ideas just by bouncing off each other you know and, and I think that that is a big appeal to me in terms of what's 
got me into the studies thing, finding out what other scholars have written about a subject, their own theories, learning more information, that kind of constant expansion of the mind, you know, but also keeping an anchor on it by having that critical process in place, you know, to scrutinise information and having the knowledge of how to do that. Very important. Absolutely. Well, Anthony, where can people <laughs> find you and uh, where can they find the Journal of, of Vampire Studies? Because I know our listeners are going to be wanting more information. Yes. Okay. Uh, the Journal of Vampire Studies is available in all uh, <laughs> uh, a, a variety of online bookshops like uh, Amazon, uh, Book Depository, um, uh, you know, even Walmart. It's across the board. I, at the moment, I don't have a designated site for it, but that is something I'm working on. Um, I have uh, my the Vampire Studies Association, which I preside over, has a website, which is uh, vampirestudies, all one word, dot org. Uh, they can reach me through that. Uh, and if, yeah, if, if they, if they want to... Uh, uh, ask any questions or, or submit something to our journal or, or, or something like that I'm I'm always open to it so I, I just love to hear what people have to say about the oh, subject. that's wonderful well thank you so much for, mm -hmm. for doing this with us tonight because <laughs> we, we learned a lot and we, we really appreciate you being here <laughs> yes I'm, I'm happy to I, I thank you for your time I appreciate it thank you for reaching thank out. you Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called finding presence. This is another great process for finding peace and bringing a sense of connectedness and spirit throughout your day, no matter how busy you are. The best way to begin this process is to find a tree or other living thing in nature. Flowers are also a great beginning point. As you take a few deep breaths, begin to observe the flower, but remove the label of flower. Observe it as if you had not ever seen one before. Look at it from the place of non-judgment when you quiet your mind. If thoughts arise, let them go and return to the tree or the flower. You can do this with inanimate objects as well, but it is often easier to do it with nature because it has the sense of aliveness you can easily observe. As you look, focus on your breath, and again, remove any labels like this is a tree, or leaves, or petals, and just observe the plants in their full, whole state of being. You will find the simple act of finding the presence of majesty will bring you in deep touch with your own spirit. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. 
Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.